From Schwartz Media, I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. The Australian people have voted overwhelmingly uh, say no to this referendum. They've said no to division within our constitution along the lines of race. They've said no to grievance uh, and, and, and the push from activists to suggest that we are a racist country when we are absolutely not a racist country. On Saturday night, when Australia rejected the referendum, Jacinta Nampajimpa Price stood next to opposition leader Peter Dutton to claim victory. As I've always said, the gap doesn't exist between Indigenous Australia and non-Indigenous Australia. It exists. Only a few years ago, Price was an obscure Northern Territory politician, but now she's a household name. The Australian people want practical outcomes, a unified country where we can move forward together. Once again, I want to thank the Australian people for delivering this result. We hear you loud and clear. Thank you. So what led to her political rise and her role in convincing Australians to vote no? Today, national correspondent for the Saturday paper, Mike Seckham, on the secretive groups that elevated Jacinta Price and crafted the messaging used by the no side. It's Monday, October 16th. So, Mike, the campaign for the no vote was obviously very effective because when the referendum was first announced, there was majority support for it. But by the time polling day came around, a lot of people flipped. As someone who's followed the no camp closely, how did they pull that off? On the the broad subject of why it happened as it did, um, there's already been an autopsy cutting this up in many different ways. You know, some people say the yes camp wasn't strong enough and organised enough. Why has Australia voted this way? I spent a bit of time at polling booths this week and I was surprised by the number of people who said, I don't get it, it's too hard, so I'm going to vote no. Just from travelling around the country, that was a message I was getting a lot, is that people still didn't get this. And I'm a bit of that for you myself. Some people say the no camp unfairly used lies and misinformation and I definitely agree with that. There was some outrageous stuff promulgated by no. And misinformation played a big part in this. I think we can't estimate that. The feedback that we were getting from Western Sydney was that, you know, the fear of, I'm going to lose my house. If the voice gets up, I'm going to lose my house. It's giving them extra rights that I don't have. And that really played a part. And importantly... And some people say the timing of this referendum, you know, during a cost of living crisis, people weren't feeling particularly generous because they were worried about themselves. And it's interesting as well, I think, now that we can see that wealthier electorates were more inclined to Mm. vote yes. And I think... If we really peel back some of the rhetoric that was reasons why people were voting no, underneath it was, what are they getting that I don't have? I think that was really what people were saying. It's a cost of living crisis. It's a hard time for some people. I don't feel like they should get more than me. I think if we really strip it back, that's what some people were saying. And you look at Canberra. And some people say the wording of the proposal wasn't clear enough. I I don't agree with that at all. But, you know, broadly, if we think about the no side, they had a few things working in their favour. First of all, it's much easier to convince people to do nothing 
than to get them to do something. And also they, they did have very clear messaging. You know, if you don't know, vote no, they said, which morally bankrupt <laughs> as it was as an argument. I mean, I think people are obliged to know what they're voting about. But anyway, the other message, of course, that they ran that convinced quite a lot of voters, as I understand it, was that not all Aboriginal people wanted the voice. That's what they said. And of course, it's true. You know, some Indigenous people did oppose the voice. As in every community, you seldom get 100% support for anything. But we know the vast majority of Indigenous voters did want it, around 80% according to multiple polls that I've seen. So the, the no side willfully ignored that majority, of course. But the argument that not all Indigenous people wanted the voice effectively enabled a lot of voters to feel more comfortable voting no. And to deliver that message, I think you just can't go past the effectiveness of the two key leaders on the no side. That's Jacinta, Nampajinpa Price and Warren Mundine. Voices like mine, voices like my good friend Warren Mundine, are speaking up. Jacinta's right. This thing is about division and dividing this country and the racial abuse that we've been hearing over the last few months. You know, everyone knows. And Ange, part of the reason why Price and Mundine became so influential was because they had the help of an organisation that a lot of people might not even have heard of or likely know very little about, which is a, a think tank slash research centre called the Centre for Independent Studies. OK, so tell me a bit more about the Centre for Independent Studies. What is that and why would they be interested in building the influence of people like Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price? Well, the Centre for Independent Studies, the CIS, it's a libertarian think tank. It's quite a powerful group and it features on its board some of Australia's most influential business figures. I mean, it's got an enormous board and you could hardly find a better connected crew. For 40 years, the Centre for Independent Studies has been providing ideas to make a better Australia. Our evidence-based practical research helps open debate and lay the ground... And basically it holds what you might call a market fundamentalist view, you know, that Almost everything can be fixed by markets. There should be less regulation. There should be smaller government. All the usual positions that you would expect from a group that indulges neoliberal thought. And this plays to their attitudes to Indigenous affairs. So for decades, the CIS has produced research detailing the failures of Australia's Indigenous policies. And some of it's very good, I might add. But what makes it contentious is the fact that it's been coupled with this advocacy for the full integration, in inverted commas, of First Nations people into a market-based society. So a consistent feature of their research over many years argues against the idea of what they call separatism, you know, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people shouldn't be treated differently in any way and have already been separated from the rest of Australian society to their detriment. And that thinking essentially blames Indigenous people for the gap between them and non-Indigenous people. As to the connection between Jacinta Price and the CIS, it's not just theoretical. Not only did she use those ideas during her No campaign, she, she actually authored a lot of them because the CIS employed her and considers itself to be kind of responsible for creating the phenomenon that is Jacinta Price and turning her into the political player she is today. Yeah, right. So can you explain what the link is between the CIS and Jacinta Price? Well, before the referendum, hardly anyone knew much about Jacinta Price. You know, she was an obscure councillor from Alice Springs. But the CIS has known about her for years, and it takes credit for bringing her to national attention. Back in 2016, she was um, plucked from obscurity to deliver this talk for, quote, emerging thinkers that they put on every year. 
and she gave a very passionate speech to that event. She talked about the sexual abuse experienced in her own family, about the scourge of violence, about alcohol-related illnesses in Aboriginal communities. In my own family, there are a number of cases that I'm aware of, stories I've been told about women who are my blood, who have experienced abhorrent acts of sexual violence, domestic violence, or have been murdered. A lot of it was personal anecdote, and it was very powerful, but it was a contentious speech too, because Price, as has been the case with the CIS even before she joined them, blamed Indigenous culture for much of the problems. Instead of looking for constitutional recognition or treaties or governments to solve the problems, ownership, responsibility and constructive criticism must take place. Yes, we've worked out the role governments have played in our country's history, but we also must acknowledge our own part in the demise of our people. Now, remember, this was, what, six, seven years before there was any referendum proposal actually on the table. You know, she was out there arguing the no case before there was a no case, effectively. Anyway, on the strength of that speech, she was made the Indigenous Program Director at the CIS. And from there, of course, it was a rapid rise. Price won a seat as a senator for the Northern Territory at last year's election. She was quickly elevated to the front bench, made Shadow Minister for Indigenous Affairs by Peter Dutton. And, and of course, when she moved on to politics, the CIS enlisted Warren Mundine to head its Indigenous program. So the links are long and deep here, I guess is the point. And the influence of the CIS in this referendum actually doesn't stop with Price or Mundine for that matter. After the break, the wealthy donors who helped elevate Jacinta Price. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. So, Mike, you mentioned before that the CIS is backed by some of Australia's most influential business figures. Can you explain who's involved with and connected to the CIS? So the executive director of the CIS is Tom Switzer. He has his own radio show on the ABC's Radio National called Between the Lines. He's a conservative writer and commentator. He's a former Liberal Party staffer and one-time candidate. So he's the relatively well-known um, face of this think tank. But there's a bunch of other high-profile figures connected to it. Morris Newman, for example, helped start the CIS all those years ago. He's most famously, I think, a climate denier, but he also wrote a piece in The Australian not long before the, the referendum that claimed the voice was a power grab by elites. Then there's Gary Johns, uh, who has links to the CIS and also Australians for Unity, which was the campaign led by uh, Price and then incorporated Mundine who said there should be blood tests to measure whether someone is Indigenous or not, among other inflammatory things, which at one stage impelled even Warren Mundine to ask him to kindly shut up because um, they were just so out there. But then if we go to the board, one of the board members of the CIS is Sam Kennard, 
whose family made their fortune from the storage company, he gave at least 40000 in financial backing to the No campaign and possibly more. We'll learn more about that down the track, I guess. And Tom Switzer acknowledged that people on the CIS board were split. He mentioned that there were a couple of board members who were also on the board of the Ramsey Foundation, for example, a, a big philanthropic organisation which donated $5 million to the other side of the referendum, to the, the Yes campaign. Yeah, I, I want to ask about donations and how both sides of the referendum campaigns were funded. The Yes side had a lot of money behind it. You could see that clearly with some of their big ad campaigns. But what about the No side? Where was that money coming from? Well, that's exceptionally hard to answer. And and I think that's one of the key distinctions is that we know much more about where the money was coming from for the yes side than the no side. As to the anti-voice groups, well, the, the financial review made a, an attempt to unravel the complicated structure of the anti-voice groups. There was Australians for Unity, which was led by Mundine and Price. But the list of its directors uh, filed with ASIC showed that they were exactly the same ones as were listed for Advance Australia, which is a sort of activist group with strong Liberal Party connections. David Crowe and the Sydney Morning Herald tried to get to the bottom of the No Camps funding and did manage to identify some donors. Marcus Blackmore, who made his fortune in the vitamin business, big-time stockbroker Simon Fenwick and his wife Elizabeth, a director of the Melbourne Storm Football Club and some others. And the point that Crow had to make was that, that this kind of undermined the, as he called it, calculated myth from the no camp that, yes, was being supported by elites. And I've got to say, I couldn't agree more. You could hardly find a more elite bunch of people than the CIS board. You know, they're very networked into the, the true elite of Australia. Separate to funding, though, maybe we could consider funding to be also the foundational ideas of the No campaign. The CIS essentially manufactured a lot of the bullets that were fired by the the activists, and it remained a quiet constant throughout the No debate. Tom Switzer says his organisation was neutral in that it published work from both sides of the debate. You know, I think that's a bit disingenuous, frankly. He was the executive director of the CIS. He had ultimate responsibility for deciding what areas of research the CIS would undertake and who would do it. And it was his choice to engage Price and Mundine. So, Mike, it sounds like the CIS, and I assume other groups like it, wield a lot of influence in the background of Australian decision-making. What does this story from the referendum say about how significant that power is and how little transparency there is about this kind of work? Well, exactly. You're spot on. There have been calls for greater transparency around these think tanks and the political groups they are connected to. And they are, I think you could say, secretive by design. And this is true of both sides of politics. You know, the CIS maintains they were neutral in the referendum, but clearly, clearly that's a fig leaf. Okay. And there are, of course, equivalent bodies on the progressive side of politics. And we don't know anything about who funds them either. The existence of these organisations is not necessarily a bad thing. They do quite often um, produce valuable work and shine light on problems. The CIS research on Indigenous policy did produce some valuable data about Aboriginal disadvantage and about various programs and their effectiveness. But there also exists the potential for these groups to undermine our democracy by weighing in anonymously, without anyone knowing, on key issues. One would argue that they've been quite successful in in the case of the referendum. And it's fair to assume, I think, that those who fund these groups are not always motivated by altruism or pure intent. And I think that's particularly true of the groups on the right. They get a lot of their money from people and corporates who have vested interests. 
If there is an organisation in Australia that can wield so much influence, isn't it in the public interest to know that and know more about it? If they've been instrumental in opposing a, a crucial referendum to try and improve the lives of Aboriginal people in this country, isn't it reasonable for there to be greater accountability about their interests? So, to hammer the point yet again, these are the real elites, and as things stand, they get to wield great influence quite anonymously. Mike, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, New Zealand has elected a new government. The National Party's Christopher Luxon, a Conservative first-term MP, will be the country's 42nd Prime Minister. The leader of the outgoing Labor Party, Chris Hipkins, said his party needed to reflect and refresh after it appears to have only won 34 seats, compared to 65 seats in 2020. And in the aftermath of the referendum, the Greens have called for a $250 million Truth and Justice Commission. The Commission, according to Greens leader Adam Bant, would pursue a truth-telling process to talk honestly with the Australian people about the history of dispossession of First Nations people. I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. We'll be back again tomorrow.